Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Tyler Fenwick, Indiana Lawyer, Senior Reporter, and your host. As always, thanks for joining us. For our extended interview this week, I spoke with Courtney Curtis and Dave Powell of the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council. IPAC is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, so we talked about how IPAC has grown and what the organization can do to address the shortage of deputy prosecutors. But before we get to that, I'm here in our studio with reporter Alexa Shrake and managing editor Daniel Carson to talk about this week's top legal news. Today is Wednesday, May 31st, and these are your headlines. I'll kick things off here with an update from the Indiana Tax Court. Kevin Halloran, Justin McAdam, and Patrick Price are the finalists to fill the upcoming vacancy on the tax court. Judge Martha Wentworth will retire later this year after 12 years on the bench. Halloran is a tax attorney at Quarles and Brady. McAdam is deputy director and chief legal counsel in the Indiana Office of Management and Budget, and Price is special counsel in the Office of Management and Budget. The finalists were selected after a full day of interviews last week in front of the Indiana Judicial Nominating Commission. The commission will send a report to Governor Eric Holcomb, who has 60 days from then to select the next tax court judge. Now over to you, Alexa. You went back to your hometown of Martinsville for a groundbreaking ceremony. So how was that? So Morgan County Community Leaders broke ground on its long-awaited judicial campus on May 15th. The county's $45 million judicial building is just part of a $72 million judicial campus project. The historic downtown courthouse will be renovated after the completion of the new judicial building, which is expected to be finished in June 2025. The new three-story building will be located where the parking lot of the administration building in Martinsville currently is. It'll have six courtrooms, one circuit court, three superior courts, and two hearing courts. Morgan Superior Judge Brian Williams said he appreciated the architects listening to judges on how to design the courtrooms and make them accessible. Williams also noted how the people involved with the project have ties to the community, including design company DLZ's Vice President Eric Ratz, who is from Morgan County. One of the really cool, neat things about this project, me being here for my entire life, I've got to work with a lot of friends my same age of trying to extend our county government to the next several generations. So as proud as we, as we are of you for helping develop the legacy, we hopefully you're proud of us for continuing that legacy for the generations to come. Now to you, Daniel, for an update on a whistleblower lawsuit against Eli Lilly. What's going on there? Indianapolis-based pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly and company has taken a hit after an adverse ruling in a federal lawsuit. According to reporter John Russell of the Indianapolis Business Journal, A federal judge in Illinois tripled the damages in a jury verdict against Lilly, ruling that the drug maker must pay $183.7 million in a lawsuit filed by a whistleblower who said the company made false claims about rebates to the federal Medicaid program. Judge Harry Leinen-Weber ruled that Lilly was liable for higher payments due to its behavior and federal law concerning penalties. Lilly spokesman Tarsus Lopez said the company plans to appeal the ruling on damages, and he said he is confident that the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals will reverse the damages award. The whistleblower, Ronald J. Streck, is a former executive of a network of regional drug wholesalers whose lawyers argued that Lilly engaged in systematic misconduct for more than a decade. He accused Lilly of 
miscalculating drug rebates under the Medicaid program by leaving retroactive drug price increases out of its calculations. Leinenweber's ruling comes on the heels of a federal jury finding 43 federal violations and ordering Willie to pay $61 million in damages. Okay, I'll come back to you, Alexa, this time for a life without parole case that went to the Indiana Supreme Court. What happened there? The Indiana Supreme Court upheld a life without parole sentence for a Southern Indiana man after he murdered his ex-girlfriend, Tammy Jo Blayton, and engaged in cannibalism with her body. The case involves Joseph Oberhansley, whose attorneys argued that a jury failed to determine that the aggravating circumstances outweighed the mitigating circumstances in the murder case that has been described as, quote, horrific and brutal. But the justices disagreed, finding that neither the jury nor the trial court made an error. The justices also found that the LWAP sentence is appropriate given that Overhansley had shot and killed a previous girlfriend decades prior. In other court news, the Court of Appeals of Indiana has agreed with a lower court that a man convicted of three counts of murder 23 years after the fact was not prejudiced by the delay. James Higgison was charged with murder in 2021. The killings happened in 1998 in Hammond, but the state didn't prosecute anyone. Then DNA evidence led to Higgison and another man being charged. The other man cooperated with police years before and had two recorded phone calls with Higgison about the killings. Higgison filed a number of motions during trial and the Lake Superior Court denied all of them. That included a request for a mistrial because the judge identified Higgison as the other person on the recorded phone calls, even though that hadn't been established yet in the evidence. Higgison was found guilty on three counts of murder and sentenced to a total of 180 years. Higgison argued several points on appeal, including that the trial court abused its discretion when it denied his motion to dismiss. He cited the 23-year gap between the crime and charges. But the COA disagreed ruling the delay was justified because of advances in science and that the state didn't delay to gain a tactical advantage. Okay, back to you, Alexa, for a look at upgrades to a historic landmark in Indianapolis. What's going on there? Hoosier President Benjamin Harrison's home on the old north side of Indianapolis hosted a ribbon-cutting ceremony this month to unveil its results of its multi-million dollar renovation project. The site received a $6 million renovations to both the exterior and interior of the former presidential home. Outside of the house is the new presidential promenade and portico and common area. On the inside, wallpaper was made to replicate the original print with layers of paint peeled in the butler's room and the floor torn up to reveal hardwood. Guest speakers at the ceremony included Indiana First Lady Janet Holcomb and Indianapolis Deputy Mayor Judith Thomas. They spoke about the generous donations to complete the renovations and the work the site does for the community. Site President and CEO Charles Hyde said they are focused on the future and boosting their civic education and outreach initiatives. Guests were welcome to take tours of the house and listen to jazz music at the ceremony, as well as play a game of cornhole. Going up north now, a group of Gary residents is trying to get a permit revoked for a waste processing facility near a predominantly African-American neighborhood. Gary Advocates for Responsible Development filed the complaint with the EPA on May 15th. The group wants the EPA to make the Indiana Department of Environmental Management revoke the permit it renewed and create a policy that incorporates environmental justice concerns. 
The complaint says IDEM violated Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In 2022, an EPA official wrote a letter to IDEM saying the agency determined the location for the waste processing facility raised environmental justice concerns. Okay, we'll come back to you, Daniel, for a conviction and an apparent road rage killing. An Army veteran's self-defense claims failed to sway a Marion County jury in his murder case. According to the Associated Press, jurors convicted Dustin Pazzarelli on May 17th in a case that involved the road rage shooting death of a Muslim man. Witnesses say Pazzarelli hurled ethnic and religious insults at the victim, 32-year-old Mustafa Ayabi, including yelling, quote, go back to your country, unquote, before opening fire. Pazzarelli shot and killed Ayabi following a road rage incident on Interstate 465 that ended in an apartment complex on the city's northwest side. Pazzarelli could get up to 65 years in prison when he's sentenced June 21st on the murder charge. He could face an even stiffer sentence after also being convicted on a firearm enhancement charge. Okay, to round out this week's headlines, I'm working on a story for our next print issue about a new pilot program from the Indiana Supreme Court. The Civil Case Management Pathways pilot project will attempt to decrease the amount of time until case disposition in civil cases, reduce discovery disputes, and allow judges to spend more time on complicated issues. Under the system, pathways are presumptively assigned by case type, but the parties or the judge can move a case to a streamlined, complex, or general pathway as needed. There are seven judges participating in the pilot. You can read that story in our June 7th edition. Okay, that'll do it for headlines this week. As always, if you want more legal news, the IndianaLawyer.com is the place to go. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear this week's extended interview. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined here in our studio by Courtney Curtis and Dave Powell of the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Courtney is the current assistant executive director for IPAC, and Dave is the former executive director. So thank you to both of you for joining me today. Thank you for having us. So Courtney, can you give me an idea of what IPAC does and how you've grown over the last 50 years? IPAC does a lot more than I think people realize. Before I came to work at IPAC, I didn't have any idea just kind of how many different pots we have our fingers in. Our primary role is to support prosecutors. Um, there are 91 elected prosecutors in Indiana, and so they have day-to-day issues that will come up that are, you know, maybe legal issues or trial advice issues. And on a yearly basis, we provide training for them to Um, give them their continuing legal education, but also just increase their skills in the courtroom. Um, We might have a conference that is solely pertaining to opening statements or direct examinations, things like that. But then we might also have a conference that is all about violence against women and children or issues relating to drug crimes. And then, of course, it's not feasible for 91 elected prosecutors to come to the state house to speak with the governor or speak with the Supreme Court um, or speak with the legislature. And so we represent their interests 
with different committees or um, different working groups in the state house. And Dave, I'm curious about your perspective too, as someone who's been around the organization for a while. How have you seen it grow? Well, it started in 1974 with a uh, spare room in the law school here in town uh, and one employee, uh, and, and we're now, you know, take up I don't know, several square feet uh, in the. Uh, State office building, we have 20 employees, uh, most of whom are attorneys. As Courtney said, IPAC does three things primarily. One, we liaison, as she mentioned, with the state administration, various executive branch offices, the governor's office, the General Assembly, and the Supreme Court. We also support, which is help prosecutors on a day-to-day basis, and then we train. That's the third thing we do. And we provide a tremendous amount of training statewide. We have expanded our services tremendously uh, to prosecutors. Prosecutors are essentially under a lot of pressure in the country. The number one, the National District Attorneys Association reported that the number one concern of a prosecutor, state prosecutors throughout the country is pay and staffing. We have a shortage of lawyers and we're overworked and underpaid and we struggle competing with the private sector, even the defense sector and salaries. So we try at IPAC to improve competencies uh, by training so that our prosecutors get to competent quickly. Our average experience level in the field is four years, which isn't very much. Having done it my whole life, I can tell you at the four-year point in my prosecutorial career, I was barely competent if I was competent. And so our challenge is to get our folks in the field be up to speed and also on the liaison point to address their concerns of short staffing and underpay. And we've been trying to do that with the General Assembly to help that. In Indiana, we have about 70% of our positions. Uh, we're at about 70% manning and our workloads are more than twice what our our friends on the public defense side is. And as a result, uh, you know, public safety is at risk when we're not fully manned and fully staffed or fully womaned and fully staffed. So. You know, we have grown to ad- to basically address the needs that prosecutors bring to us. We work for them. They don't work for us. And, and when they reach out and ask for help, we try to expand and provide services to them in all aspects of their function. So and they, they do a lot more than people realize in terms of ensuring public safety in their communities. And we'll get to that shortage in a minute, but I understand you're up to 20 people now at IPAC compared to just a handful of people years ago. So, Courtney, what has that meant for increasing the organization's reach when you mentioned things like conferences and advocacy and stuff like that? So one of the things that IPAC does is we have some experts in particular fields. We have what you call them resource prosecutors. So we have an individual who works for us who his specialty is you know, crimes that are um, pertaining to drugs or guns. And that's a very specific specialty. There are a lot of issues there that come up um, on a frequent basis that may not come up as often with other types of cases. So he can really drill down on those topics. And if you have an issue with a drug case or a gun case, you can call him for his expertise. We have a resource prosecutor, which have two that their expertise is in traffic safety. And you might think, why why do you need an expert on on speeding tickets or the like? But um, obviously, drunk driving is a a huge problem nationwide. It has become a bigger problem in states that have legalized marijuana because we have more drugged driving cases. And so we have two prosecutors for whom that's their specialty. 
We have a prosecutor whose specialty is in cases against juveniles, and that's a specific subset of law. There are differences to that that aren't the same if the defendant is an adult. So that's her specialty. And we have one who her specialty are crimes against women and children. The importance of that is that those people can become really experts in their field. When someone calls in, they don't have to worry about, you know, can, can I set aside, do I have the time to set aside two or three days to do a deep dive into you know, the white papers and the research and what are the best practices of this, they have an expert, you know, basically on on the other side of the phone um, who can answer all their questions for them. And so that growth has been wonderful for Indiana's prosecutors because it allows you to have an expert when, in a moment's notice. Yeah. One thing to remember <clears throat> is most of our prosecutors are small. You know, there are three or four people in a rural office, 80% or more are in small counties or not like Indianapolis or, or Gary where they have a huge staff. And those small county offices are generalists. They have to do a little bit of everything. And it's really a challenge for them to be an expert on any particular topic. In fact, some counties have a murder every four years. You know, we have them, seems like every day in Indianapolis, but for them, they don't have a lot of experience in dealing with that. So we have, as Courtney has pointed out, lawyers on staff who have a lot of experience uh, handling certain types of cases. And that's a resource that prosecutor can call and say, hey, this is coming up. I haven't done one of these in six months or two years. Can you help me out? And we try to help. If you can take yourself back to that that single room at the law school all those years ago and and think about what it would mean to have the kind of staff that can give that kind of support in specialty areas, what would that mean? Well, if you go back then, <laughs> prosecutors, all of them were part-time. And they all had law practices on the side. And, and uh, prior to the, the 80s, there just weren't that many cases filed. You know, uh, crime was taking place, but not a lot of it was addressed. It, it, people may not believe it, but we've done a remarkably good job in the last 40 years of addressing the crime in this country. Of course, one of the results is more people are in jail. But we have reduced drunk driving overall. We've reduced domestic violence. You know, we're able to keep our finger in the dike on the drug problem. We're able to provide, you know, more help to the communities to keep them safe. No one wants to live in a community that's not safe. No one wants to work in a community that's not safe or raise children. And so I primarily, our primary responsibility to make sure our communities are as safe as we can make them with the resources provided. So um, I think we're doing a better job today. We're, we're better trained. We have challenges. You know, the economy creates challenges, as I mentioned. But uh, yeah, that would have been great if it was available back then. But no one in the country had it. You know, if you, when I first started, I could not, in, in 1986, I was a part-time prosecutor. I made $28,000 a year part-time and was not allowed to go full-time. We had no full-time prosecutors in our office. And today, in that county, there are three full-time trial attorneys in three courtrooms when there was only one. So the criminal justice system has expanded across the board in the last 40 years to address the growing population, the urbanization, and the various trends in crime. So, Courtney, I know as we've been talking about IPAC, you know, primarily exists to to help the the state's prosecuting attorneys. But does the council also play a role in in trying to address the the shortage of of deputy prosecutors out there? We try to. It's difficult because although prosecutors are enforcing state laws, there are only a portion of the office are paid for by the state. So you have your elected prosecutor; they're paid for by the state. We have what's called a chief deputy prosecutor. They're paid for by the state. But the counties pick up the tab for the rest of those um, deputy prosecutors. And so there can be a disparity, you know, county by county, just dependent upon 
what resources are the counties providing for their particular prosecutor's office. So, I mean, we did have some legislation that we put forth this last session to try to address the problem. Sometimes these things take a little bit of time. Um, so I, I don't think we are done having the conversation. I know that we are not done having the conversation. Um, but yeah, the, there is a, a shortage. Part of the problem is there's a shortage of attorneys. And I think there's a perception problem with prosecutors too. Um, people have become maybe in recent decades more questioning of government or more questioning of power and and thinking, you know, prosecutors are government and, and they have power. The, the truth is prosecutors have a lot of heart. Prosecutors have a lot of empathy. I was a deputy prosecutor for a long time. I never considered myself to be the government or the, or the man or, or powerful in any way, shape or form. I considered myself to be a helper. Um, so the people that I know who are prosecutors and of course working for IPAC, I know more and more prosecutors every day, um, obviously know them statewide now. We don't see ourselves as part of the problem. We see ourselves as in our communities saving people's lives, saving their livelihood, making, like Dave said, making their communities safe. We don't look at ourselves and think of only the people that we put in prison. I think of the victim who is protected from her bully. I think of the victim who is protected from her accuser, or excuse me, from her, um, uh, the person who assaults her. Those are the things that that we think about as prosecutors. And so there's a lot of fulfillment that I don't know people realize. Um, so that's probably be part of our message too. Um, it's not just funding and, and what's the crisis that could be facing us from a public safety standpoint, but there are there there is actually more money to be made than I think people realize. I I worked for a mid-sized firm and I made the same amount of money as a deputy prosecutor that I did when I worked for a mid-sized firm. So I, I do think that you know you can dispel some of that notion. But when I was working for the mid-sized firm, no disparagement to them, but you know I was it was. The moving of money from from one account to another and and kind of pencil pushing, there's really nothing that can replace the feeling you get from hugging a mother whose you know child was murdered because you have sought justice for them. There's really nothing to replace giving somebody the power to speak to their rapist what happened to them. You know, not to to be so blunt, but terrible things happen to people and we get to stand between that victim and someone else and say, not today, that's really powerful. So when we support prosecutors, part of that is getting out the message of what it meant to us when we were in the courtroom prosecuting cases. I know during the the legislative session that just ended, you had mentioned Indiana is 440 prosecutors short of what's needed to meet caseload standards. Is that a number that's that stays about consistent now? Or does it does it fluctuate? It's gonna ebb and flow. When we look at caseload standards or workload standards, we're gonna have to pick a calendar year and and it has to be one obviously that has finished, right? So that we can look at what are what are all the cases that were filed in a particular county for a year and then um, compare that to their the staffing ratios. So that could obviously ebb and flow, um, but it tends to say pretty standard that we are um, staffed with much less people than those on the other side of the courtroom. And Dave, I was hoping you could give some context to to how this shortage fits into a more historical picture with with prosecutors here in the state. Is this something that you've always seen as an issue? 
Well, we've we've been looking at it for a long time, and nationally, prosecutors have been looking at it. But there was a time when there was a, an overabundance of lawyers. Law schools seemed to be letting everyone in, and people couldn't find a job. So we didn't we didn't struggle as much filling positions. That has certainly turned. In terms of caseloads, we've always had too high of a caseload, in my opinion. Uh, we did a study in 2006, and we knew then we needed more lawyers. We not only needed more lawyers, we needed more paralegals and other support staff to address the need. I used to say in my community that if you gave me enough resources, I could stop crime in the county, but no one wants to write that check, and no one wants to be in a county where that kind of control is there. And so there's there's a tipping point, right, in the public safety world where people feel safe. Once people feel safe, they don't want to spend any more on public safety. But when they don't feel safe, then there's obviously an issue, and that's when it typically goes. And so we, we've had a problem in terms of staffing and numbers. We just work really hard and we try to train. Uh, but it's at a point where uh, we're not as successful. We're not providing the types of justice overall we'd like. We're not winning as many cases, and that's for a lot of reasons. But when you go into courtroom and try a case, you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, and you have to persuade everyone on the jury. It has to be a unanimous verdict. It's not a majority vote. And, and that's, a, that's a heavy burden that a prosecutor has to carry. And, and it should be, right? Because we're t- potentially taking away someone's liberty. But it takes a tremendous skill set to do that and experience. Law schools don't teach you how to try a case. They don't, they don't teach you any of that. You learn it from experience and the type of training we provide. And so, you know, our goal is to at least be equivalent to our public defender friends who have a, an accepted and now a funding mechanism based on their caseload. We have the burden of proof. We have to prove the case. They just have to defend it. They don't have to put on any evidence. Uh, but yet we still have caseloads that are three and four times their number. Uh, that's, a, that's a real problem for public safety in the state. Uh, we, we think we have a plan to address it. We just have to persuade the people who write the checks to do it. Hopefully at some point we can get that done and we can make one of the frustrating things for every elected or every prosecutor in the field. And I know Courtney's felt this as well is when you can't take the time you need to work on a complicated case. I mean, we have a lot of unsolved old murders out there and candidly, if you don't solve a murder case within the first few days, many of them don't get solved because the next crime comes along. The next case comes along. You don't have the, you don't have the resources and time to go back and work on some of those cases. And, in those cases just grow old uh, and unsolved. And that's frustrating for a prosecutor or a deputy who, who has those files in their cabinet. So I'll ask this of both of you, and I'll start with you, Dave. But as you're trying to convince people that this job is important, you should be doing it, you're trying to get law students to consider government work generally, what's your pitch? I, you know, I don't think there's any greater calling, uh, you know, than to serve your community and keep it safe. I mean, we are literally the Dutchman with our fingers in the dike. You know, if if our law enforcement officers are not supported by good prosecutorial teams, crimes don't get solved and crime gets worse. It just does. It's hard to, it's hard to believe it, but you see it when you're a prosecutor. Most people that commit crimes are just making mistakes and you can fix those folks. But there is a segment that is really bad out there and, and they're frightening. And we can we control that segment through law enforcement and providing public safety tools. And, uh, you know, if you want to be a part of that team and you want to serve your community and keeping it safe, uh, you want to be in a courtroom where you're alive and you're, and it's real, it's personal, uh, takes all of your talent and your skill set. Uh, maybe like being an actor, I don't know, but it is, uh, you know, Johnny Carson used to say he never felt more alive than he, when he did the monologue as an attorney, 
I never felt more alive and more real than when I was in front of a jury trying a case. There's something about that experience. And I tell people all the time, I know what it's like to win the Super Bowl. I do know. I've had tremendous victories that are emotional. Uh, and you never forget the feeling of that, providing that kind of justice to it, especially in a homicide case or a child molest case, where there's a, a rape case, where there's a, a victim or a victim's family that appreciates what you've done. Courtney, that sounds similar to what you were talking about earlier, sort of sharing your personal experience as a way to humanize the profession. Is that part of your pitch? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't remember names of defendants that I've put in prison. That that, that isn't my, I don't have a tally board for that. I remember people and their faces and the relief that they felt. I remember the hugs that they gave me and the gratitude. I'm, I've been invited to weddings. I've been invited to baby showers. That's something that you cannot get in other areas of law. And, you know, like Dave said, that feeling of, of it's real and you're in the courtroom. I don't know any other area of law where you can be trying cases at the speed at which you can be trying cases as a prosecutor. Um, this may scare people. It may excite other people. But I was trying major felony, you know, homicide cases when I had been an attorney for six months. And, you know, that could terrify people. But, you know, there are attorneys who have been, you know, in a civil law firm for six years and are just now getting to be the first lead attorney on a deposition. Um, that wasn't the case for me. You know, I was trying cases, of course, with the supervision of an attorney, but as a as a law student, um, trying burglaries and robberies. There's hardly any type of case that I haven't tried. And I think that has given me not only a wealth of experience that I think made me a better lawyer, but I think it made me a better person. It it touched me and and changed my personality in ways that I don't think I would have had otherwise. It makes you grateful for things. It, it can be really hard work. Um, but when you're working 60 hours a week for a goal or a vision that someone else has given you, that that can feel pretty onerous, right? And that's what happens a lot of times in civil law firms. Um, when you're working long hours because there's a name attached to it, there's something that has happened that's terrible and I need to you know, vindicate that. I need to make that right. Um, it's it's not hard. It, it like Dave said, it's a calling. Um, and if you can have a purpose to your work, we spend most of our time at work. Um, and so if you can have a purpose to that, that is not just making you a better lawyer, but making you a better person all at the same time. Um, I, I don't. I can't think of a better profession. Okay, we'll we'll try to end on a little bit of a, a brighter note here. I feel like we think that is a bright note. <laughs> That's no, just no, how twisted right. we might be. You're right. It, I I meant we'll get away from this shortage talk. And, sure. <laughs> gosh, you need more people doing this. That's that's what I meant. So uh, obviously, this is your 50th anniversary. I'm just wondering, you know, what does it mean for an organization like this to get to 50 years? Well, I, that's a long time, right? five decades. Uh, and we've grown, we've evolved. I think we've adapted. Um, yeah, I'm proud of what we're doing and what we've done and the team we've assembled and the services we provide. I think we provide value that's irreplaceable uh, to a client that's essential. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to, we're, you know, we're trying to make it a special year just to recognize it's been 50 years since our creation and, and hopefully we'll have another 50. Uh, and then, you know, we'll be able to continue to address 
the challenges that society presents us with. You know, the good news is that we have work to do. You know, we haven't solved all the problems. We probably never will. Uh, but that's what we are. We're problem solvers and problem identifiers. And, you know, I look forward to those those continuing to come our way and us providing solutions. You know, we put a lot of time and thought into that. And, you know, I think we've done a lot of good work uh, and hopefully a lot more to come. And Courtney, as you look ahead toward, uh, like, like Dave mentioned, the next 50 years, what is your, your goal, your vision for, for what IPAC continues to become? I think the best thing about IPAC is that the sky is the limit. I don't have to have a goal or a vision um, to worry or wonder about what IPAC will be next. The growth that we've had over the past 50 years tells you that we probably have no idea what the next 50 years will look like. We are well positioned to pivot. We are well positioned to become and serve whatever our prosecutors need us to be. And, and I think that is my goal or vision for the next 50 years. All right, that'll do it for this week's extended interview. Thank you again to Courtney and Dave for joining me. As always, to hear our previous interviews, visit theindianalawyer.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you next time.